0: Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast. Today, we are pleased to welcome Mitch Horowitz. Mitch is a historian of alternative spirituality and one of today's most literate voices of esoterica, mysticism, and the occult. Mitch is a 2020 writer-in-residence at the New York Public Library, a lecturer-in-residence at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, and the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, The Miracle Club. Joining Mitch in conversation is Dr. Jamie Cohen, digital media culture expert and co-host of The Digital Void. This conversation was recorded live on the Digital Void's YouTube channel on Wednesday, June 3rd. The full video replay is now streaming. Make sure to head on over to digitalvoid.media for more information about our upcoming salons, workshops, and podcasts.
1: Back in 2016 when the after the election there's a to me there's a bit of a shift in the way that we started thinking about how our mental health would be worked with or considered in this time in this rough time and i had had noticed like that these mind gyms had started opening up in new york city Mm -hmm. like these places Mm -hmm. that you could pay to sit and think and i wanted to know based on like your work and how you've uh done the the the, the studies you've done and the work you've actually written how do you think what do you think of those what do you think about the moment and how the politics of that time affected people so much that they wanted to express those feelings in a place where they paid to sit how do how do we how do we center that idea it's an interesting question
2: i've never personally visited one of those mind gyms so i'm not able to speak from experience but i suppose my experience has been one of of indifference to them as an individual it's not something that i personally want to go and seek out, I, I, I suppose there's a degree to which every experience becomes so commodified mm-hmm. that you feel as if everything you've done in your life at one point or another is going to get sold back to you, including slang expressions, music, uh, humor, anger. Anger gets sold back to us. I mean, anger is the biggest commodity on Twitter. If it weren't for bickering and insulting one another, often anonymously, like, Twitter wouldn't exist. So is it interesting? You know, we see the actual commodification of anger, and it would seem to be strange. You know, you might say, well, gee, I don't like getting angry, but look again. You know, anger is a tremendous adrenal rush. Anger gives people a temporary feeling of power. Anger, is in some regards an act of violence, emotional violence, not physical yeah. violence, and people enjoy something. People enjoy something about it. There's a roller coaster like quality to it. So I'm always watching very carefully for when our experiences get sold back to us. Now, apropos of these mind gyms, my way of taking a break in the midst of the day is, is usually to nap. I've gone through periods where I've meditated. I've gone through periods where I've napped, and. I used to just literally, literally throw out uh, like a Zafu mat on the floor of my office back when I had an office, when I worked in in publishing, uh, which I no longer do, uh, and I would just go to sleep. I had a friend who used to work at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, and uh, he worked in a newsroom atmosphere where you're just seated at a desk in sort of uh, an open source office, so-called, and he would just put his head down on the desk and go to sleep and hope that you know, the big boss man, Bloomberg, wouldn't walk by and ask why you're sleeping. But the, the fact is, so many things that are sold back to us, we can do on our own. Not everything, not everything. But I do I do try to watch real carefully uh, for the manner in which we, we start to subscribe to or pay for things that we can do on our own,
1: including right. anger.
2: You know, yeah. which most people seem to have no problem doing on their own. But now we've made it into a multi-billion dollar business on Twitter.
1: Well, I think that's absolutely cogent. I think that, I think your observation on Twitter is incredible. My, I think anger is one of those data points that's actually really quantizable more than other data points. I think it's not ambiguous in many ways. It's kind of like we know where it's directed. And so it is interesting to do that. I think I went to those mind gyms for quite some time. I was, that was like, I was going through a really rough spot and I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, this is kind of like the tool that was coming up and my, it started showing up on the cover of all these magazines too. And then I started thinking about, well, I don't think it has as much to do with the paying for that process, as much as it's like, as I have to start doing that myself. Like, and it's almost like a tool set. I actually learned how to do it. So then I was like, well, why am I paying? That becomes unnecessary. And then you start realizing that, that um, one-to-one transaction of internet media and digital media, we don't pay for those products. We don't pay for Twitter. And in doing so, we are the product. So it's like, we're giving that out to the world. So how do we find ourselves inside of that knowledge if we're not really sure that we, we, if you don't pay for it, we're the product? How do we regain that agency? Well, that's a wonderful
2: observation. We are indeed the product. And I try to remind people that every time you insult somebody on Twitter, every time you throw mud at somebody on Twitter, you are becoming the product that they are selling back to people. You are part of the anger economy. And I think it's an illusion to imagine that putting out that kind of anger and negativity constantly, all day long, every third comment being sarcastic or caustic or something, has no effect on the individual. I feel very strongly that has an effect on the individual. Many, many years ago, people used to talk about what was called auto-suggestion, the idea that you could repeat certain affirmations to yourself and if repeated frequently enough, they would they would retone or recondition or color your character. I absolutely believe that's true. And I think in our own generation, we've seen uh, placebo studies and cognitive studies and other things that have demonstrated the absolute truth of that. There's also a kind of auto-suggestion occurring when we direct sarcastic or hostile comments at other people. It's not a consequence-free situation. And I think uh, gossip, for example, I would say is not a consequence-free situation. Debasing other people is not a consequence-free situation. Any more than physical violence itself is is not consequence-free. So I would ask people that if they want to feel a greater sense of self-possession, if they want to feel a greater sense of nobility, of dignity, frankly, words that I believe are underused in our in our time, start by desisting from smearing and gossip and just taking cheap shots at people. It doesn't mean you don't express your point of view. It doesn't mean you don't have a strong point of view. And it doesn't mean that you're not entitled to express anger about injustice. But it's these tiresome, sarcastic comments that just are these drive-by acts of hostility that could easily enough be avoided my contention based partly on the whole auto suggestive thesis is that and there's also an ethical dimension as well you will stand taller you will stand taller and within a single hour if you desist from that kind
1: of habitual chronic anger mongering yeah there's a a problem with digital media itself of this algorithmic direction into it like i think your anger um, currency the anger economy is an incredible way of putting that because that's about those data points of how much time we spend on these things. Yes. And being bigger, being better and like understanding or taking a breath and taking a step back is really recognizing like we have that control. We don't have to be on these machines. Uh, that that makes me start thinking about this current moment. You know, it's like there's a lot of pain going on right now. Like mm. there's, we th- there's an ache, I would put it, almost like a bone ache. This deep we're we're seeing hostility and we're seeing this this, the problems that America has always faced from the time it was incepted to now. And now we're seeing it being exhibited in these very, uh, almost like explosive moments that we're watching on the street. And the reaction mm-hmm. to that, the militarized police and the actions against it, doesn't just hurt the person who's on the street, but hurts the people that are at home too. Mm-hmm. How are we able to start thinking about being a good agent or a civic agent in that space, but also remaining that a place where we, we remove that ache, or maybe we give to somebody else who is aching differently, how do we use? That? I guess the best way is: How do I use that privilege to give to somebody who might be in that situation that can't get rid of that ache that I might feel? Well, it's
2: hard for me personally to speak about macro solutions. Sure. Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of experience with macro solutions. I, I look out in the world. I participate in the world. I see the exact things. You've just described, and I could describe all the contributing factors, as could probably most of your viewers and listeners. You know, we could all rattle off. You know, the um, uh, the, the the unanswered calls of Black Lives Matter, uh, COVID, the lockdown, lack of government support during the lockdown, that wonderful wonderful man who's in the White House, and all these things that that that, that create a terrible pressure cooker situation, and. So the causes, I think, are apparent to all of us. Uh, the solutions are going to have to be macro in nature. Of course, they're going to have to be constructive policies, real policies, things that make a difference in people's lives. Whether or not we as an individual nation possess the civic will to do that, I do not know. Whether or not we as a nation even possess, at this moment, the political vehicles to do that, I do not know. It's, it's, people experience difficulty in voting. And that is a terrible stain on our, our system. That is a terrible detraction from American democracy. And th- th- that's just one of many problems. So I'm not entirely sure we even possess the vehicles. In terms of how to behave toward another person, how to deal with the pain that you feel, how to deal perhaps with the pain that another individual feels, I do think that while human nature has not changed, social media has debased us, yeah. and I personally think it's extremely damaging to the individual to use an anonymous handle on social media or you know whatever you name it, you know Twitter, YouTube, what have you, and to debase other people. And mm-hmm. I think that it engenders not only hostility in other people, but it amps up hostility in oneself. And the fact is, most of our lives today, most of our business lives, most of our civic lives, most of our political lives are online, you know, apropos of what we're doing right now. You know, I mean, this this is a prime example. And I think that our generation is conscripted to relearn the lessons that maybe an agrarian generation had to learn many, many years before us, which is many folk who came from the agrarian experience didn't really know how to adjust to life in more crowded cities, industrial areas, offices, things like that. It wasn't any ethical failing. It was just different. And today, uh, I would say, actually, it is an ethical failing on our part, our generation's part. We don't know. We don't know how to live with anonymity and, and the kind of sense of disinhibition that that gives us, how to live with a 24-7 media platform where you can be in touch with people literally all over the world instantly. How to live with the fact that we can be broadcasting our opinions all day, every day, and constantly. How to live with the fact that we now, certainly for the first time in my life, have completely segmented media. So if you think one way, you can watch Fox all day long and nothing, you'll encounter absolutely nothing that you'll have to disagree with. If you think another way, you can you know, watch something else, MSNBC or NPR, you know, or what have you. And so we're living with this segmented society, an anonymous society, a society that's digitally disinhibited, an ability to broadcast our opinions constantly. And we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it. Every lesson about civility that previous generations learn must be relearned by us. And eventually we're going to come around to that or we will fall apart.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with you on this a lot. This is this is my research and it's been I think what you've said is extremely important because the granular nature of digital media is kind of different entirely. There is no real analog to the environment we have on Twitter. It's a being a digital environment that's ecosystem based like what you're talking right. about. You watch Fox News and literally never see another point of view. It, occasionally never. a rare descent. Vote. Right, right, right. But right. for the most part, you're hearing exactly the, the echo chamber. And then with Twitter, you we each live in our own different feeds. If if you're not curating a feed that's going to have uh, ex- an extended points of view, you're not seeing it. It just simply isn't there. It's invisible. Right. right. And to the point of the re- I, I have a term for it, like the reaction reactionaries. People. Yes. Who absolutely. Reaction.
2: And and if I may, please. You know, it occurs. I mean. I'm not comparing you know one to the other i mean i feel trump has visited a grave crisis on our nation that we may not be able to recover from so i don't want to give anybody the misimpression that i'm saying well both sides have to be nice to one another i think it's it's much more complicated than that but i would also say that it's important not to think that just one side is possessed of all the problems and the other of all the answers you know I think that the, the, what was your phrase? I'm sorry. The reaction, reaction, reactionaries. Yeah. The reaction, reactionaries. reactionaries. I mean, today, for example, I shared a tweet, uh, that showed the, the minister, the prosperity minister, Joel Osteen at a black lives matter protest. Mm -hmm. Now I do not hate Joel. I do not. I don't (laughs) think he's the smiley face cypher that he's been depicted to be. He's not my go-to guy. He's not my main man. You know, but, but I, don't, I don't hate the guy, and I think that a lot of people within the media misunderstand that within mainstream evangelism, by which I mean massive media ministries, prosperity ministries, and, and churches of all different sizes that hold to the core evangelical principle that the purpose, the mission of Christianity is is salvation, is repentance and salvation. There's a lot of different expressions within that, but if you check out that mainstream culture, it's enormous and there is a political continuum within it. There absolutely is. And you've got people like uh, Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and even the late Oral Roberts who were not nearly as politicized as figures like Jerry Falwell Jr. and, and Benny Hinn and Jim Baker today, Jim Baker used to be not so bad. Now he's decided he, you know, wants to join those guys. And, and, you know, but if I post a tweet saying, well, Joel did something today that wasn't terrible, you know, he joined a Black Lives Matter protest, which I think it's important to recognize. I think you're right. Uh, You know, I mean, some people dig that and some people react against that who have never listened to a Joel Osteen sermon, who have never read a Joel Osteen book. I'm not saying you're going to like what you encounter, but it might be helpful to realize that Some of these people who are on the more apolitical end of that spectrum say things and do things that the individual who thinks that that he hates them might discover he doesn't really hate them if he would just get down with some of not only specifically what they're saying, but the fact that they are hated. Some of the figures I just mentioned are hated. This also includes Norman Vincent Peale, who is himself very conservative politically. But they are hated by people who are on the right wing of evangelism because of their apolitical stance. Their apolitical stance, Osteen's refusal to denounce gays, his refusal to say that uh, people who are non-Christian are going to hell, his categorical refusal to do all those things attracts the hatred and ire of of other people within the evangelical movement, including Benny Hinn, for example, who, who has an enormous ministry. So Forgive me for the tangent, but the, the point I'm trying to make is just that those of us who are on the more progressive side of the spectrum need to understand that there are these gradations on, on within more traditional conservative culture. That's not a reason to feel happy or to feel relaxed, and that doesn't detract in the slightest from the abomination that Trump is, but it is important to note that some of those figures absolutely are there.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because, like, I had this odd anger against Joel Osteen for a while, and I didn't know where it was coming from. Like, I just. Everyone hates Joel. (laughs) Like I was like, why do I even feel anything? Like, that was like, where is that? that Those emotions even coming from. Why would I dislike him for anything? He doesn't affect my life in any way. And it came to me where I was realizing that I was really part of something bigger. I was hating him because it was part of a community of dislike of him. And I was like, wow. Yes, exactly. I have to back up. I had like, to exactly. step a few steps back and be like, what, what what good does he give in general if it's possible? And then maybe say that if it doesn't affect me, then I can't think of him. And I saw the tweet earlier, and I was like, you know what? Well, it doesn't make me feel like I want to like him, but it definitely right. makes me feel more positive. I bend towards the – at least he took the energy and the effort to do something of that. Yeah. So it's like, hey, my judgment on him had nothing to do with reality. So why was I even thinking of that in the first place? And seeing him actually take those actions should be admirable.
2: Yeah, and it, it's, it it seems like a fairly minor thing to do, you know, oh, you know, big deal, you know, Joel 10 years belatedly participates in a Black Lives Matter protest, and maybe he's just doing it cynically, but there's a heck of a lot of people within that world who would never think of doing that and who are right. influenced by that. So, you know, one could also say, well, gee, it's just opportunism, but, you know, within American religious culture, there's always this mixture of guile and sincerity, always and everywhere. Right. There's opportunism and, and there's sincerity and they're frequently very, very intermixed. So it's difficult to say that it's absolutely this or it's absolutely that. Right,
1: and that's what I actually then want to talk to you about our influencer in chief um, who uh, uses those those symbolic items like his, his photo op the other day, going to the church and holding the Bible. And to me, to be honest, it was a hilarious moment, but it was really yeah. packed. With a credible amount of violence in terms of like what that means, not just the violence of moving the protesters, but the actual violence. But yeah. I want to talk to you about his his background, his mm-hmm. his uh, his he like his role of like having like the influence of Norman Vincent Peale. That's right, on, on absolutely account. true. Like he's one of those people that uh, this moment makes him because Twitter is a moment for him, and so he's actually able to use this the granular tool. To the benefit of his presidency, and become an influencer of sorts. So his reaction is the reaction reactionaries. He's the king of that, yeah. In, in more ways than just politics, like literally, like with that. Mm-hmm. But that, it's interesting, like to hear like that mindset he did. He built himself into that that moment. And I can remember watching. I was upset, as you can imagine, of the the election. But I remember watching the the parade, and his his face, and I was like, for the first time I ever thought, you know he set his mind and he actually did it. And I was like, that's the one of yeah, the first things I realized true. how much power there was in just making that happen. Right, right.
2: It's a very interesting question. And I wrestle with this question because I have written with critical sympathy of the New Thought movement, the the, the positive mind, positive thinking movement. And it is undeniable that Norman Vincent Peale, author of the the... Famous bestseller, "Power of Positive Thinking," which was the secret of the nineteen fifties. You know, I mean, it popularized th- these positive mind metaphysics. Peel was a singular influence on Trump. Uh, the Power of Positive Thinking may be the only book Trump has ever read. It's the only one he's ever talked about, and and there's no question that it occupies a central place in his life. So it throws me back on the question. Is there some intrinsic connection between a grotesque fraud like Trump and the positive mind movement? Now, if you ask somebody like Barbara Ehrenreich, Barbara would say, "Absolutely, absolutely." Here is this guy denying reality. You know, he's a complete uh, uh, grotesque. Example of positive, what you call positive mind metaphysics, run amok because he's just saying the world is as I see it and it's leading us down the road to destruction. Mm-hmm. There's no contesting that. There's no contesting that. The big question for me personally is is there something intrinsically present in that? And I'm wrestling with that question. You know, I could very easily give you an answer, no, there's no intrinsic connection and I could defend that answer. But rather than defend that answer, I'm perfectly capable of doing that and I'm perfectly capable of supplying counterexamples. I would prefer that people in the new thought movement and people like me just at least hold that question and sit with that question. I have a vested interest in saying, oh no, 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 You know, Trump is just an aberration or there's no intrinsic connection. And I, again, I could defend that point of view, but rather than defend that point of view, I think it's better that I, I hold on to that. I hold on to that because this president is, is, is creating such a, a margin of division in our country that we're probably going to think of everything as pre-Trump and post-Trump. Right. It's disastrous. And I don't know whether we're going to recover from it, and I can't run and hide from the fact that the one book he's ever talked about was Power of Positive Thinking. So if it doesn't give me pause,
1: you know, shame on me. So there's Trump himself in the background, of like with his connection to Norman Vincent Peel It's like he went to the the church. Like it obviously played oh, yeah. a large it applied played a, a large influence on his life. So it seems like I, I do agree. By the way, that I think that's probably his only book that he ever read. Because I don't. Yeah, think... I think so. I know his one of his biographers, and he told the biographer that he doesn't doesn't read; he just simply doesn't. And that that means I would I'd like to know if you know like maybe more about like how did that that maybe that influence like why did that become something that turned Trump into this this grotesque figure? Is that right?
2: Connected? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale uh, was politically a, 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 an extremely conservative figure, so yeah. much so that he probably crossed the line over to to bigotry and nativism at a certain point in his life. He opposed the presidential candidacy of John F. Kennedy on the grounds that Kennedy as a Catholic would be loyal to the Vatican. I mean, this was ugly stuff. This was not just small town conservatism. This was profoundly ugly stuff. And Fred Trump, Trump's wonderful father, uh, took the family to uh, Marble Collegiate on Fifth Avenue in New York City, where they attended church. And Trump was very taken with Peel and Peel was very taken with him. Now, when I was writing my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the Positive Mind Movement, I write a lot in there about Norman Vincent Peel, and I sort out his politics and his influences. Now, this book was written long before Trump's political career began. But Peel's successor at the time, a wonderful man named Arthur Caliandro, who's now dead, uh, sat and spoke to me about Peel and his legacy and such. And Arthur, brilliant minister and a beautiful man, was critical of Peel in some very significant ways, even though he was seen as Peel's protege. And he told me, and I believe this in the book, he told me that Peel had a weakness for powerful people, he loved big, epic personalities, oh. and he said once Trump was on television while Peel was still alive. This must have been a maybe the 1980s or something. You know, back when Donald Trump was just a loudmouth real estate developer in New York City. Who knew? And um, and and he said that 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 Peel stopped what he was doing and became very fixated on Trump on the television, and he found Trump a very Appealing magnetic figure, and Arthur said to me, "You know that was a weakness. That was a weakness." Peel loved rubbing shoulders with hobnobbing with uh, the big and the powerful. The poor may be blessed in spirit, but at Marble Collegiate, you know the big shots got to sit in the front row, and 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 Peel really grokked to having relationships with them. So it was a symbiosis. And um, it resulted in something I think uh, uh, really tragic and terrible. But it was a symbiosis, and I read about some of these things. Now I must also say that there are aspects of Peel that I defend. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but Peel in the nineteen thirties was one of the people who helped destigmatize uh, uh, therapy, psychotherapy, yeah. going to see a psychiatrist, and Peel with a, a, a psychiatrist named Smiley Blanton co-founded a a clinic in the basement of Marble Collegiate Church called the uh, Religio Psychiatric Clinic and they provided both pastoral counseling and and traditional what was then traditional psychotherapy. Right. It was considered a terrible stigma to go see a psychiatrist in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. You know, you were thought to be off your rocker. People would keep it a secret. Peel helped destigmatize that. So Again, you can't get at the truth of any of these figures' lives without understanding that there are all these paradoxes folded in upon one another. You know, in some respects, although Peel was conservative, very conservative politically, he was very liberal socially because he, he, he helped strip away some of the shame that people associated with going to see a therapist. And he could write an article in Reader's Digest saying, you know, psychotherapy is as, as valuable to the personality as religion is to the soul and nobody should be afraid of it. That that was a brave stance. Yeah. And and he did things like that at various times in his life. So I, I try to see the full man.
1: I like that. I like that approach. I think there's there's something about... In Occult America, you write a lot about the, the histories of many people that were a little bit progressively ahead of their time that normalized something that was further on, that they were fighting for, they were advocates of, that yeah. seemed a little out, and then they, it became kind of normal. And I they have to look at those those moments, regardless of where they were coming from, as, as things that helped us progress, which is what... Without question, without question.
2: I mean, there's a marriage between the, the spiritualist movement or the movement around seances and talking to the dead, and the women's rights movement that's been so widely overlooked, and academia is just coming to grok to it and to understand it. But the, it's quite simple. In the mid-19th century, when The movement around spiritualism and seances began to sweep the country. Who were the mediums? The mediums were women. And Mm -hmm. so women who wanted to have a voice in the culture, who certainly couldn't serve as civic or political or religious leaders, openly found their way to the seance table. And they became a religious leader of a certain sort. And there is such an incredible intricacy of, of connections and innate connections between spiritualism and suffragism it really is a secret history, but it's been, it's a neglected history.
1: Yeah. I have just two two or three more questions and then we're going to send it to the audience because I know they're going to ask you questions too. One more political question though, because it is relevant to this. Yeah. You mentioned about like the, the connection or seeing people as something else. So I really want to talk to you about Bannon. Mm-hmm. as the last thing. So uh, Bannon as the, you know, he became the chief strategist of the White House, but he was a yes. note reader of Julius Evola, you know, and yes it seems almost, and we know now Bannon's worldview, did he see Trump as a tool to exhibit that worldview from that occult-like background that helped him understand that Trump could be a tool for this, this this output of the occult in that way?
2: That's a good question. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever put that question to him directly. Uh, so it's hard for me to answer in any definitive way. I first heard from Steve Bannon shortly after I published my first book, Occult America in 2009, and he called me up and he was really grokking to it. He wasn't famous at that time. And he said, you know, you probably don't know who I am, but I'm a conservative a documentary filmmaker and an ex-financier. And, you know, we, we, became, we became friendly and it wasn't until years later that Steve's rise began. And when it began, it, 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 it unfolded in a period of 18 months. You know, right. there was a period of time where nobody had heard of Steve and you know he was this guy who lived in santa monica conservative politics uh made a lot of money by investing in the show seinfeld you know and 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 wanted to bring uh high standards of quality to conservative documentary filmmaking was into a whole wide range of esoteric figures which is what got him interested in in occult america among other things and So we hit it off. And then I remember years later, I started seeing his name show up in the newspaper and news reports. And within a period of 18 months, he went from being this not well known conservative activist to becoming a household name, a household name, you know, he's this sort of intellectual Rasputin. And and so now, whole books are being written about Steve, right. and whole documentaries by by talented people are being made about Steve, and it, it all transpired within about eighteen months. I don't know, you know, what he saw in in Trump. I I I, I suppose he saw him as a vehicle for some kind of right wing populism. Although it's difficult for me to define right wing populism sure. because. For me, populism also means that you have to protect the rights of working people, including with health care and so on, which I feel very strongly about. We don't talk politics, and we haven't talked much recently. I heard from him literally just the other day. There was a book he wanted to send me. What he saw in Trump, I'm not sure, uh, but what Trump is is an unmitigated disaster, Mm -hmm. and I can't say that plainly enough yeah i
1: as you can imagine i agree with you so i want to like just before we go over to questions i just want to uh, praise you a little bit with the not to plug everything else but i want to praise the the ideas of like the, the times you do talks with other people and i want to bring up the m- your most recent visit with duncan trussell or oh, yeah. visit um <laughs> this is and uh, it's in the same way we really wanted to have you in this is supposed to be a salon series we're supposed to be in mm-hmm. public but obviously uh, the the pandemic is this is our best moment at this point and honestly if you have the time and we're in the city again if this after we've got a vaccine and things are going somewhat back to a place where we can move forward from this because there's no way of going back to normal um, that's right we'd love to have you in person i'd be um, delighted yeah so i just wanted to bring up a moment that you in that podcast that I li- i've I listened to several times about some ways in which um our mindset and being positive in this moment like how it can affect us so I, in a very short story it's, I went through a very, very difficult time at my previous job and I turned mm-hmm. down tenure. I, I had to do it because I was getting to this point where I was, I could not be, I noticed something that the place itself, regardless if I, st- if I stayed, no matter how much I worked on my brain, it wouldn't have actually exhibited any way of Absolutely true. Absolutely true. I was yeah. doing meditation and this yeah. is something that was in this podcast and my friends didn't believe me they were like, okay, like they were like really skeptical because it wasn't working. I may have been doing it and feeling better personally, but I still wasn't exhibiting a better person out. And you mentioned that sometimes we realize we don't have to stay in those places that right. we actually have that, that choice. And so that, when I listened to the, the, the podcast and I heard you talk about the changing in the venue, I, if you could just explain that to our audience a bit about what that means to think about how we have so much control as well, not just in, in our brains, but in our place in our environment too. Absolutely.
2: I I really hope this is useful to your viewers and your listeners. I think it's profoundly important. We live in such an overwhelmingly therapeutic culture, which is positive in many respects, that we internalize all of these messages without necessarily examining them. One of the messages is that you can't change other people, so you have to change yourself. You can't work on the rest of the world. You have to work on yourself. It's easier to wear slippers than it is to carpet the world. I borrow that from Stuart Smalley. Um, and, and, and that, that the problem is not some kind of exterior thing. The problem is that you know you have to adjust your reactions, adjust your point of view, pray, meditate, uh, think positive things about the other individual, all kinds of things. And I submit that sometimes that advice is simply wrong. Sometimes what the individual needs most urgently, is to get away from cruel people, get away from people who are tormenting you, who are hostile to you, or who you just have zero chemistry with and you're always going to have friction. And I feel that we underestimate the power of very simple things sometimes. And of course, with this lockdown, people have been cooped up together, sometimes in domestic situations that they're very unhappy in and and I feel I feel that very deeply for such people. And some people say to me, look, you know, you prescribe burning your bridges. You prescribe cutting the cord and and not looking back. But some people say, listen, you know, I'm in a financial situation where I can't do that. I'm in a family situation, employment situation. And I honor that. What I would say is vow internally, vow internally, and mean it with all your life that you're going to get away from this person within and without at the first physical opportunity and do so do so because a change of venue a change of neighborhood a change of relationships a change of employment can work wonders and i don't say that lightly or i don't say that as a figure of speech it can make all the difference it can save your life don't be persuaded that you always have to follow the imperative that all change has to occur within there are there
1: are changes that must occur with your feet yeah and thank I mean thank you for that because that's it was such a moment I it was so it was so many elements of problems that I finally realized you know there was no no matter how much I stayed there was no changing somebody else so absolutely no changing but I mm-hmm. do have and I have the privilege of of changing the venue and that was yeah. like, holy crap like <laughs> was i could like, tell you felt great when you did it that it
2: last is. day you walked out and you thought wow it, it was you like know that thing that i'm you throwing know. my coffee cup in the
1: garbage and i'm gone you know it was that therapeutic yeah. moment that that where that commercial the dark cloud is like walked away and i was like that actually worked it does work it does like, work, it does work. Doubt, as you can imagine but it yeah I, I it's not that
2: i want to push one approach versus another approach or say this is right this is wrong but just verify these things verify these things we hear things repeated so frequently to ourselves, whether so-called spiritual truths or so-called therapeutic truths, we don't question them. And you're entirely at liberty to question whatever you want. I
1: right, thank you. Uh, Lily. Let let's have somebody, I think we have a two-part question here. Joe Sinopoli says, asks, if we presume that Trump is acting in perennial values is the ilk of Goddard, Peel, et cetera, that he's truly believing his words to such a degree that they feel real, even implicitly, does, that then, does it then follow that he's manifesting his reality over our own? In a strange way, is he ruling our world via the, the noosphere? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. And I, I, I agree
2: uh, with the presumption of that question. I agree, and I think the answer is, is yes. But the reason I'm able to say that is, and this will be part of you know, our part two discussion, I take a metaphysical view of life. I do believe that we 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 have an extra physical existence. And I feel I feel very strongly about that. Mm-hmm. And and I feel I can speak to that very, very plainly and in ways that are not just metaphorical. That being the case, at least from my point of view, yes, I think Trump's assertion of reality is extremely powerful. But if that's an intrinsic part of every human personality, then it stands to reason that another individual can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So Becoming aware of this metaphysical aspect of your existence, I think just broadens your sense of potential power, the importance of personal ethics, the tools that you may have available to you. If it's an intrinsic part of life, as I suppose, then it's available to everybody. And um, the guy in the White House is just dauntingly powerful at using it.
1: How will will you, the viewer, use it? You know, that's an open question. Yeah, I think that's, it's an important... Uh, observation too, to have that, that type of exhibiting that reality. I think that's something you did mention in the other podcast too, is like how much we our extra physical senses are really part of us. So when we absolutely, we could tune into those feelings, because he's got every platform that exists. So it's like, we are tuning in to that feeling. That's that. We have to remember that we have that. We are that too. It's just, we may not have the platforming, but we do have that power. So it is, that is, I love observation.
2: And turning points can occur very quickly as well. You know, I said Steve Bannon went from being a, you know, not really well-known conservative activist to being a household name Mm -hmm. in 18 months.
1: Things can change very quickly in any number of directions. Yep. That's it. That's incredible. Kay Marin asks, can you, can you speak to how or if occultist influence have helped growing acceptance of the mental health movement?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. You know, so much of what we used today as our therapeutic language had its earliest entry point into Western culture through movements that could be considered a cult. Today we all talk about the unconscious mind, the subconscious mind, or, you know, we all believe in, I think correctly, this notion that there is this other deeper mind that 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 that, that rules our lives in ways that go beyond ordinary, above board cognition. Now that's accepted by virtually everybody, I would think, today in the Western world. But the fact is, this notion of there being an unseen mind, a subconscious mind, this is much newer than we really think it is. And it was actually students of Franz Anton Mesmer, the occult healer who was active in in Paris uh, just before the French Revolution. His students began to think that perhaps the healings that he seemed to be working were not due to some invisible animal magnetism, which he claimed to manipulate, but rather that there was this other, deeper, unseen mind. And they began to theorize along these lines in the early 1800s. It wasn't until the 1890s that people like William James and Frederick Myers and some others began to speak of a subliminal mind, which later was referred to as a subconscious, which later still by Freud was referred to as the unconscious, but people are, unaware of the fact that that concept is newer than we tend to think. And it began to enter Western culture through students of
1: of France, Anton Mesmer, who was an occult figure. Yeah, it was amazing to read your book and actually not as as a historian myself, a tech historian. It was amazing to hear how recent some of the terminologies even existed. It's
2: amazing. It's incredible. You know, you'd think to yourself, uh, this way of thought has always been with us, you know, just... Think positive and everything will work out okay. Well, if you said that to somebody, you know, 150 years ago, they'd look at you, what?
1: What are you talking about? <laughs> you know,
2: this is fairly recent.
1: This right. Fairly recent, yes, the know? 20 late 19th and 20th century work that has been around, but now we had a language for it. And it was it's very well,
2: interesting. we make we make such a mistake in in giving our history an older vintage than it really has. You know, someone wrote not long ago in the Washington Post that the new thought movement was was sweeping America in the mid 19th century. That's not true at all. You, 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 the equivalent would be like saying rock and roll was sweeping America in the 1940s. You'd say, wait a minute, that's that's ridiculous. Of course, the roots of it were there. You know, you had rhythm and blues and gospel and, you know, so forth, but but we didn't start to see rock and roll until the 1950s with Fats Domino and Little Richard and so forth. And and then later, of course, Elvis. And so, you know, you gotta really take a moment to, to reflect sometimes on how recent some of these
1: things are. That's like my big fear with tech history is that we use a lot of presentism with tech and we assume that these things are around and everything's in their nascent fetus stage of technologies at this point. And we are just like assuming that this is just how life was. And so it is good to hear. Wonderful point. Yeah, This is part of a longer history that's very recent of how we speak about it today.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Brent asks, Mitch, can you talk about what we can expect from your recently published study guide on the Hermetic Treatise of the Kabelian, if I'm pronouncing that right. Can you give us any personal anecdotes about how you engage in Hermes? What oh, you...
2: I really appreciate that question. I just published a Cabalion study guide. The Cabalion is an occult book that was published in 1908 under the mysterious byline of three initiates. And it, it, it's it, it really became one of the most popular underground books of the 20th century, and I would say of the 21st century. And a lot of people, upon first encountering the Kabbalion, which purports to be a book of Hermetic wisdom, late ancient Greek Egyptian wisdom, uh, and I was among them at one time, roll their eyes and say, "Oh, come on, you know this is just some early twentieth century occult novelty, which is new thought or positive thinking, kind of dressed up in in e- e- Egyptian style clothing." Uh, and I, I I held that point of view, you know to a greater or lesser extent for several years, and then I realized I was wrong. I was just simply wrong. The fact is, the man who did write the kabbalion whose name is William Walker Atkinson, who was a really prodigious and brilliant new thought philosopher and publisher and a lawyer in the early 20th century, he was a sturdy, sturdy uh, student of uh, Hermeticism. And using what Victorian age translations he possessed, he did codify some, some very solid Hermetic principles including psychological principles going back to a period where we had no conception of the psychological, you know, apropos of the point you were just making about presentism, into the Kabbalion, And I think the book is a real triumph and it's become a very important book in my life. It's a good entry point to Hermeticism. And I would also recommend, as I do in the Kabbalion Study Guide, reading traditional Hermetic texts, late ancient Hermetic texts side by side with it. And our generation is very fortunate because Hermeticism was neglected for just generations following the Renaissance. It was thought, it was considered discredited because the timeline was, was found to be wrong and that these things were written down in late antiquity rather than primeval antiquity. And so there was a tendency over time to regard Hermetic works as kind of musty or fraudulent or something. That was just wrong. And for that reason, past generations didn't have good translations. We have good translations. So use them, use them. I would read Hermetic works hand-in-hand
1: hand, uh, with the cabalion. awesome thank you so another question coming up phantom ocean asks mitch i wanted to say thank you your article in sobriety was pivotal in me turning the corner and putting my own vices behind me and better focus on my own goals drew
2: i appreciate that very much he's uh talking about an article that i wrote a medium called how Tucker Carlson saved my life. <laughs> and why can't I stay away from the right wing? I don't know. <laughs> Tucker and I were friends in the 20, when we were in our twenties. I don't know him, you know, today, I and mean, we've we've long since lost contact. But he talked about uh, he was in, on an interview show recently, and he said something to the effect of, you know, just as an aside, he said I wanted to be more successful, so I stopped drinking, and it, and it worked. And I thought to myself, well, you know. I am not abstinent. I am not sober, you know, strictly speaking. But that is an approach to life that can be so valuable. And I did, I did, and I do go through periods of adopting sobriety when I feel I need to amp up what I'm doing in the world. Intoxicants uh, are just—they they—they can be very wonderful, and they can be very destructive, and it all depends upon the individual's experience. And we have to at least look at the possibility of going sober, going completely clean and straight, you know, when it comes to intoxicants, if we want to be more effective in the world,
1: it, it, it does have an impact. There's no question. Thanks. Yeah, that's uh, great. Laurie Johnson asks, I would like to hear your thoughts about meme magic, which like, really close to my heart. I'm a meme uh, historian too. And its yeah. influence on the digital zeitgeist. Are these things reinforcing Trump's assertion of reality? That's a great question. And in in short, I would
2: answer yes, I really do believe that that is true. I believe meme magic um, just has an extraordinary capacity to interject, influence, spread an idea, an assumption across the culture, which is why it is so important in each of our individual lives that we stop to ask ourselves with great regularity, how do I know that's true? How do I know that's true? And, you know, it's funny, the other day, um, you know, Joe Biden made that gaffe about, uh, if you don't know the difference between me and Trump, you ain't black, and then later, you know, he had to sort of walk it back and apologize. Um, And there was a uh, Republican uh, congressman who said, uh, a senator said, you know, well, shame on Biden, you know, something like, um, you know, 1.1 million black Americans voted for Trump. And I read that and I thought, that's interesting. Is that true? I have no idea whether that's true. I haven't the slightest idea whether that's true. America is a very large country. You know, are one point one million people even really that many people? You know, and so I, I'm using a sort of like um, example that just is, was on the tip of my tongue. But it's just one of these times where you have to ask yourself, politically, socially, but also intimately, how do I know that's true? Because. We all come under the enchantment of these things.
1: Yeah, that, just because I know what it is and you know what it is. What is what is meme magic? And
2: it's, it's the idea of usually a, a visual bit of information combined with a phrase, some unit of information that just gets put out into the culture and that we all automatically accept. Like an example, I don't know why I'm using so many political examples. People used to make fun of Al Gore for saying that he invented the internet. He never said that. We all know he never said that. But mm-hmm. it was constantly pinned on him. You know, you invented the internet. You invented the internet, you know. And and these things become so powerful. It's a kind of groupthink. But I think it's something more than groupthink because it's it's
1: just so overwhelming. Yeah, Luke got uh, that question. And it, it was t- it's Tinder, you know, it's Tinder to fire we have to be <laughs> yes, Yeah, it is. It's uh, Luke uh, and I and uh, Josh. We all talk about this a lot, and uh, it is my study in cybercultures in the late '80s. There's a lot of uh, Terrence McKenna, Mean Magic. Uh, that's heavy. At the time it, too. That's so heavy. To see these cycles as they come back into our yeah. as well. Yeah. Stephen Brent asks, do you find value in the alchemical model of psychology and personal development as a way to introduce deep inner working concepts to the general public?
2: Oh, I definitely do. I I can't say that uh, psychological alchemy has been at the very forefront of what I've been involved with. But at the same time, this idea of turning gross matter into fine matter on a psychological level runs through the Kabalyon. It actually runs through hermeticism to a very great extent. You know, some of our late ancient ancestors from whom we're separated by just hundreds and hundreds of years and cultures and perceptions. Nonetheless, they were interested in this quality of inner refinement, the idea that you could bring to thought, emotion, psyche, intuition, a, a finer, more developed quality, which, which in their mind would actually open you up to influences from a higher sphere. They saw life as composed of all these concentric spheres. And we, men and women, occupy one sphere. We're in sort of a disadvantageous position in this one sphere. We have these frail bodies, we decay, we die. But there are these other spheres where there's greater resiliency and and the influences from these other spheres uh, on a psychological level, they wouldn't have thought in those terms. They might've said on a level of the soul or noose or what we would call the psyche, some amalgam of everything that exists within the inner life can be refined. So you find that within hermeticism. And I do think that you could refer to all that as psychological alchemy. And and certainly some of the alchemists working in the Renaissance saw it that way. Although, again, we didn't have the term psychology or psychological. But but I think there was a a grasp of that. And I, I think that can be worked with by the individual in today's therapeutic culture for sure.
1: I agree. Scott asks can you uh, can you ask- Burbank all right <laughs> yeah <Burbank laughs> asks, can you ask about having a spiritual practice in these dark times and what it is like the practice that I'm using
2: right now I mean I, I have a variety of different practices that run through my life and sometimes I'll bring one more to the forefront one will become more pronounced this is what I'm working with right now I, I'm very interested in the idea of setting an intention, holding this intention, really making it the gravitational center of your existence, and watching very, very carefully. You must watch very carefully for signs of it concretizing in your world. And one of the things I'm working with right now is that we are often told that the royal road to using any kind of mind metaphysics or any kind of mental causation is sort of a feeling state you have to enter into this feeling state where you feel possessed of that which you want you feel emotionally persuaded of that which you want and because we're living in a time where there is a great deal of anger as as you were alluding and at, at all times at all times yeah. sometimes it's very difficult for the individual to enter that feeling state so my question to myself and my question to to everybody watching and listening is well if you can't enter the feeling state that that, that, that allows you to feel uh, fulfilled or forgiving or whatever it is you're interested in, what feeling state can you enter? What feeling state can you enter? Because maybe that's enough, you know, maybe that's enough to get where you want to go. You know, maybe you are unable to go to bed at night thinking, I'm wealthy, I'm wealthy. You know, maybe that's just an emotional impossibility and that's understandable. That's understandable. But what feeling state can you enter? What feeling state can you enter? And that might be sufficient. I don't want us to hold ourselves to standards that make uh, inner progress, outer progress impossible. You know, I don't think a cruel trick has been played on us where unless you're, you know, in this kind of fulfilled frame of mind, you won't receive anything. So there, you know, that just kind of recreates this binary division between sin and salvation, let's say, that a lot of us. Uh, fled from in the religions of our youth. So now that we're in a new place, let's not recreate that binary division in a new place. Maybe it's not necessary for you to go all the way uh, over to the concept of um, prosperity, you know, but maybe there's some other feeling you could have that's still constructive and powerful. And that's totally cool. Live
1: with that, work with that, see see what occurs. Thank you. We, In respect to your time, we got one or two more questions. Then. Sure, pleasure. uh, Emily Collins asks, I've gotten a lot out of the Kabbalion, but I've never read it side by side with older hermetic texts. I love this idea. Do you have any older hermetic text recommendations for beginners? Yes, for sure. And I I love that
2: question. Thank you. (laughs) Because I think in a very programmatic way. So so dig this. Um, The Corpus Hermeticum was a collection of hermetic texts that was uh, translated uh, from 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 Greek into Latin during the Renaissance age. Get a good translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, and I'll recommend two. Read books 1 and 11, books 1 and 11. They're very short. I mean, they're the length of what we would call pamphlets. And within those two books, you'll get a great encapsulation of some of the ideas that play out through the Kabbalion. Um, My personal favorite translation is from Cambridge University Press by a scholar named Brian Copenhaven, Cambridge University Press, Brian Copenhaven, 1992. It's just called Hermetica. It's magisterial. Uh, The publisher, Inner Traditions, also published a very, very good translation called The Way of Hermes, The Way of Hermes, which came out in 2001. Both are excellent. I have a particular love for Copenhagen because he writes a wonderful historical introduction, and there are there are others to choose from nowadays. But it used to be people in the early, gen- earlier generations, pre-Copenhagen, um, PC, you know, they didn't have <laughs> uh, uh, really quality translations to choose from. We do, so we should really take advantage of that. And there's others out there, and you know, take your pick. But those those two, I think, are especially
1: good, and I would start with books one and eleven. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we put those in the show notes too. So thank you. And Meg Alzona asks, are there any or no of intriguing emerging trends in magical practice, i.e. incorporating tech or programming linguistics? That's really interesting. I, I, I've
2: never, I'm not much of a tech prophet. You know, my friend, Eric Davis is a much better tech prophet than I am. And he's a better person to whom to direct that question. I, I, I would say... There there are a few things that I see developing right now. One of the things I see developing is a willingness to really, really throw out all forms of orthodoxy, even the orthodoxies that we, within the alternative spiritual culture, have created for ourselves. I'm definitely seeing um, a more radical openness to questioning. And... I'm excited by it because I found that I started to feel about five years ago that our responses to questions or concerns or problems that people were having, whether within ceremonial magic, whether within new thought, whether within Wicca, all started seeming to come down to the same kind of catechism. There seemed to be a lot of rehearsed thought going on. And maybe just because of the frustrations people are feeling, I'm seeing that get really busted up. And I applaud that, and I call it anarchic magic. And I have an article titled "Anarchic Magic" that is up at Medium. And I just really want people to feel at liberty to take a sledgehammer to these old ideas. You know, I I wrote a piece which caused some ire recently called uh, "Forgiveness: A Dissent," where I asked myself, you know, how do we know? How, how do ethical individuals know? And by ethical, I mean respecting reciprocity. How do we know that forgiveness is such a moral imperative? You know that's been handed down to us, and I, I'm really, honestly, honestly asking that question, and I want us to start asking those questions. And I think we are seeing that in the spiritual culture. I find that hugely
1: exciting. That that forgiveness essay was absolutely incredible too. Thank so you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. Luke says, "Where does Mitch get his leather jackets from?" Oh well, this <laughs> leather jacket. <laughs> always wondered.
2: <laughs> this leather jacket is very special. I um, wow, look at I the lining. That thing. What's that? <laughs> yeah, you see the lining in there. Yeah, it was just restored. This lining. Uh, this leather jacket was purchased uh, at a, a thrift store in the neighborhood of Dumbo in Brooklyn uh, about a year ago for a television reel that I was doing, which you'll you'll hear more about in the future. And I fell in love with it. I was just supposed to be renting it as a prop but I loved it. So I I bought it and it was kind of falling apart. So very recently I had this new lining put into it. And uh, at first I didn't like it, you know, because it's, it's too small on me and I couldn't close it. And I said to my manager, I can't wear that. You know, I I can't close it. And he said, do you know that the Ramones could not close their jackets? And I was like, done, done. I will never complain again. Yeah. So that's where this one comes from.
1: That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And that's <laughs> a good comparison, Ramones and you. That's amazing. So thank you so much uh, for being Pleasure. here. Do you want to add any plugs or talk about something before we close up? We could add them to our show notes or anything.
2: No, I really dug all the questions. I, I love the questions. I love everything everybody was asking about. Um, I have a new book called The Miracle Habits, which is coming out in July. I think July 14th. In that book, I expand on a number of the things that we talked about, including... the the importance of radical questioning, radical verification, uh, you may find more important than anything else. You may find that an idea that you've been taught to internalize even in settings that are considered very freeing and very progressive may not be nourishing you and you are allowed to discard it. And I, I want everybody to feel that liberty.
0: Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. If you are posting to social media, make sure to use the hashtag digitalvoid. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, sponsorships, and feedback.